Welcome to the Wealthy Circle Podcast, where we take a deeper dive into this year's finalists and winners from our wealthmanagement.com industry awards. These interviews cover the challenges, innovations, and trends in the wealth management industry and the individuals working to help advisors better help their clients. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Wealthiest Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. I'm the editor of wealthmanagement.com. And this, as you know, is the podcast where we speak with the finalists of our wealthmanagement.com industry awards for 2021. And now I'm pleased to be joined by Frank LaRosa, the founder and CEO of Elite Consulting Partners. Frank, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, David. It's, a, it's an honor to be, uh, to be a finalist and uh, look forward to a pretty, uh, pretty nice conversation today. Yeah, well, congratulations on the uh, on the uh, finalist status. Uh, you are a finalist in our succession and ownership transition services uh, category for non-custodians or non-broker dealers. Uh, you are basically a financial services recruiting and consulting firm. Uh, before we kind of dive into the the, the, the weeds here on, on what the judges recognized you for, can you just give us a little bit of your background and where you come from and 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 what you're doing now? Sure. So uh, I was a former financial advisor at Prudential Securities and Smith Barney. I was a complex director at Smith Barney and Morgan Stanley for, for a short period of time after the merger. And I uh, started my own recruiting and consulting firm 10 years ago. Actually, it was 10 years ago last month. So we, we just celebrated that um, momentous occasion. Uh, we have roughly 30, 35 consultants around the country. And we really uh, specialize in, in helping our client, the financial advisor, find the right new home for them, uh, whether it be a you know an, a, another wirehouse if that's where they're at, or they want to go into private practice and be independent, um, or or go into the RIA space, um, or candidly um, go into the you know the, the succession planning world where they're you know on the tail end of their business, they're looking for that successor, they're not sure what they want to do yet, they're not sure if they want to retire, and we really come in and help them find what's going to be the best fit for them. Uh, we take a very agnostic approach to finding the right solution for our client. Uh, so we try not to actually use the word recruiting, uh, really, because everything we do is based on consulting with them first and foremost to find out what their needs are, and then we help them deliver the results uh, that they're looking for. And so we, uh, we pride ourselves in doing that, uh, doing it the right way, making sure that um, we are holding their, their hand through the entire process. My team is stacked with uh, industry veterans, so people that have been around the industry for a long time that really understand an advisor's practice and all the new nuances that go uh, into the business with their clients, uh, the, the things that they'll run into over time so that we can really help them find the right, right, right new home for them if that's what they're looking for um, or if they're looking to you know, retire out of the business, um, which is where, um, you know, our sort of what, what we're being nominated for uh, comes from and that dual monetization, making sure that our clients aren't leaving any money on the table uh, for their life's work. That's really what we try to try to do um, more than anything. Yeah, it's, it's uh, anecdotally, it seems that, you know, advisors spend a career building their businesses, whether that's as an independent or, or inside of a full service firm. Uh, it's still very much their business that they're building. And I think looking for that monetization at the end of it is something that uh, many of them don't really begin to think about seriously until it's the, the later years, right? 
Yeah, and, and that's a concern that I have. One of the concerns that I have within the industry is one of these like, well, it's not going to happen to me kind of things, right? Advisors mm-hmm. don't necessarily think about um, or that when they look at succession planning, they only look at it like, well, when I retire or I'm never going to retire, mm-hmm. but they never take into account uh, what I call a contingent successor. And that is what happens if I, if the proverbial bus comes down the street and I get hit by it, right? What happens to my life's work? And having, having been an advisor and having, you know, this is the only industry I've really ever been in. So all my friends are advisors, my closest friends. And, and so I, I worry about them all the time. And that is that it, what happens to your business, what happens to your family, what happens, you know, if something happens to you and, you know, and, and, you know, and your book is, is going to get distributed to all, you know, to, to whoever, how do they, how does it help Denise or whoever, you know, the spouse is right. And we try to talk about that as best we can. And the other thing is that I just can't, as a business person, um, handle sometimes is that advisors don't understand the real value of the, of their business. And there are deals that are being thrown out by the firms that they work for, right? Morgan and Merrill and UBS, right? That are nice. You know, they're, they're good. I mean, the, the UBS has an alpha program and they can pay, they can get paid, you know, two to two and a half times their book. Um, but that book is worth so much more um, outside of their organization and, and, and exponentially more if they go independent and then sell. So where, where this whole dual monetization uh, thing came in, uh, which has been which has been trademarked, and the whole process really comes from having friends just leave too much money on the table by taking the easy path and just retiring at the firm that they're at. When I believe that they can make a move to a new firm and and then set up their retirement at that new firm, and by doing so, they're they're monetizing their business twice. Hence the dual monetization, um, you know, process. And you know, moving a firm today is not like it was, uh, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 10 years ago. It, it is very effective. Um, I think COVID has actually made it even easier because clients are now used to not seeing their advisor all the time, and the process to make those moves has become more efficient. Uh, what I've seen over the last I'll call it 18 months or maybe 12 months is that not only are clients or advisors moving a larger percentage of their, of their business when they, when they make the move to a new firm, but they're moving that business faster than they have been in the past. The, the technology has gotten better. Clients are signing their documents faster. Um, a lot of advisors aren't in the office anymore. So, when a, when a manager distributes those accounts, you know they're just not they're just not on top of it as they as they once were when when a manager could walk around the office and hand out sheets of paper uh, with with client names and phone numbers and information on them to call those clients. So I just think that there has been this, which is why we see so much transition happening. One of the reasons why we see so much transition happening in the business. And so when you look at dual monetization as one component. Um, it, it's so much easier for advisors to move today, even if they're at the end of, towards the end of their career, right? You don't have to go to a firm and take a 10-year deal. You can take a five-year deal. You're still going to get more money 
if you take that five-year deal and then sell to your junior partner or somebody else at the new firm at, at a two or three times multiple of uh, the revenue at the new firm. So you're able to monetize your business in a greater way than just retiring at the firm that you're at. And I'm, sure. I apologize if that's long-winded, but it's a very, I'm very passionate about this particular topic, uh, both in the contingent successor um, area and the dual monetization area, because you know you, you work 30 years, you know for for your business, and you should get the most value you can for it, uh, for you and your family. And and dual monetizing your business is the way to do that. Sure. Then and and the dual monetization strategy is what the uh, judges for our awards really landed on as the the unique offering uh, worthy of the accolade here. So can we dive a little bit into the mechanics of it? Um, if you sure. are making a transition as an advisor uh, under this dual monetization strategy that you've uh, created, is it necessary for the advisor to already have a junior partner before they make the leap? Or, or maybe you could just sort of take us back and give us some of the mechanics of the dual monetization strategy. Right. So it, it, it's not necessary. Uh, if you have a partner, that's better, that's better obviously, right? Because you can make the move. Your, your partner's already built in. Your clients already know who that individual is. So when you're the older advisor, I call it more seasoned veteran, uh, with a with a junior advisor, you're going to make that move, you're going to structure your deal, and we're going to help help the advisor structure the right kind of deal so that you can, as a senior producer, monetize the transition money that you're going to get from that firm. So let's call it, instead of getting 150 or 160% up front, maybe you're only going to get 100% up front because you're going to take a shorter deal, um, which is fine. Um, or, you know, instead of you don't want to, you don't want a nine-year deal, you only want a five-year deal. So the, they're going to give you a, a, a lower amount of money because they can't monet, they can't amortize the, the deal over the, over a longer period of time, but you're still going to get that money. Your, your younger advisor is going to come with you. He's going to, he or she's going to get a deal. Also, theirs would be a more traditional deal. So a longer term deal. And then if you're, if you're five years away, you know, three years into that new employment, you're going to start working on your succession plan out of the business with your junior partner and the firm that you're at. So, and it may be through a split, you could structure it where you still get 70% of the revenue and your junior partner gets 30%, you know, and you sort of, that goes down from 70, 60, 50, 40, 30, whatever, whatever that number is for, for three, four years. And then at some point you, will officially say, I'm, I'm going to retire. And that's where most firms already have succession agreements um, put together. So again, like UBS calls, there's the alpha program where at a, depending on the, your production size, you can get um, almost as much as 250% of your revenue to sell. And you're going to get that paid out over five years. Right? So if you think about this conceptually, you make a move, you're on a five-year agreement with the new firm. So that's fine. You're transitioning your clients um, over to your, your junior partner, putting them in touch with your clients more often so they get more comfortable because on that second five-year piece where you're actually going to be retired and not be in the office anymore, you're going to get paid on the success of the book that's being generated, the revenue that's being generated on the book. So you want to make sure that that, that handoff is done the right way. That's, that's if you have a partner, it makes it a lot easier. 
if you don't have a partner and you're an individual producer, candidly, it's actually even more important that you do something like this because you need to make sure that you have something in place for that contingent success opportunity. Mm-hmm. So same process at the beginning, move to a new firm. So let's say it's UBS, you move to UBS and your manager that you're joining is going to work with you on finding who that, nest, who that successor is going to be for your practice. And you have time, right? Because you're not retiring tomorrow. So you have, you know, sort of three to four years to figure out who that person is going to be. Most likely a good manager is going to already know who you are as the advisor because you're in a, it's a small market, it's a small street, as they say. So they already know who you are. They already know who they feel you would be a good fit with, both for you personally, but more importantly for your clients based on the kind of business that you're generating. And so then you're going to take that same, you know, two years I mean, that first five-year tranche and introduce, soft introduce that, that new person to your clients. Um, and I say soft in the first year, it's, it's soft. It's announcing a partnership, um, a, a, a joint, um, sort of a joint business relationship. And then in the fifth year, you're going to make an announcement that, that he or she's taking over. Um, and then you're going you're gonna to fade off. And so, again, you're going to get that 250% uh, piece. I actually walked through the actual numbers of this on, on a YouTube video that we have. If you go to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa, how to increase your, your payout by 288%. I actually walked through the math of how it works, right? Because so far up until this point, we've talked about W2 to W2, where you can really, you know, you can leverage the, the transition deal that, that firms are willing to pay because they don't really care if you come on over and then uh, even if you're on a seven-year deal, you decide five years into it, you want to retire because they just want the book to stay at their firm. So they're okay with you uh, retiring out. And I think that the other misconception that advisors have, which is why uh, one of the things we talk about within the dual monetization process is you don't have to completely exit stage, stage left. Right, you can just slow down. You, even if you have a seven-year contract and you only want to really work five years, well, in that last two years, even if you just come in once a week or make phone calls, you stay registered, active, and registered with your firm. It still meets the obligation of any contract that you sign. So you're able to take advantage of those longer-term deals and stay connected to your team. And then when you're really ready to retire fully, you can then you know, pull, the, pull the trigger of the succession plan at, at the different firms. And the same thing happens if you want to go independent because independent firms still offer deals. They're not as rich up front, but for that five-year period of time, that initial five years or seven years, if you want to stay around, you're getting twice the income that you would normally get. So you're, you still are dual monetizing your business by making a move to independence and then selling when you're independent. And candidly, when you sell, when you're an independent business owner in a private practice, your multiple is going to be even higher than, you know, than two times your revenue. Um, if, you're, if you're an all fee-based producer or mainly fee-based producer, you're probably going to see in the, in the five to six times range of your total of your revenue. Right, so there's, you can do total revenue, um, or you can do uh, your basically net income. Right, so the way I look at it is, if you're 
if you're W2 advisor and you can get five times your total revenue, it's twice, it's twice what a W2 firm is going to give you on top of all the money that you made by increasing your income over five years or seven years. So you're really monetizing your business exceptionally well by going independent first and then selling your, your business to, to the, the firm that you joined or the office that you plugged into. And that's a long-winded answer, but there's yeah, so no, many, there's so many uh, components to it. But really what it, what it comes down to is you're essentially doubling the amount of money you're going to get for your practice uh, versus just selling and retiring at the firm that you're at. Yeah, and those numbers hold true even if you are an independent business owner uh, selling to a junior partner sourced from the uh, broker dealer that you affiliated with. Correct. Correct. Yeah. You. You. If you're an independent business owner, you're 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 in private practice, and you know you're obviously earning the money that you're earning. When you go, you, the, the independent broker dealer you're with, if they want to find you somebody to take over the business. You know, you're going to be able to monetize your 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 business at that five to six to seven times revenue um, with that junior partner. And a lot of times, the firm that you're at, that new independent firm, you know, let's let's say it's LPL, just pick a name, right? They're going to help that junior person fund that purchase. Hmm. So it's not like, you know, if you have a two million dollar book of business and you and you bring on a, a five hundred thousand dollar producer, you're going to say, well, how can he afford to buy my business? Well, the firm that you're with, in this case, maybe it's LPL will help that advisor you know, help that advisor buy your book of business. Raymond James does a great job at that as well. Meriprise is another firm that provides the funding and capital for that junior person to buy out your book of business. Uh, and what about going into the RAA channel? Does the same kind of a strategy apply? So the same strategy applies. Uh, the difference is, and depending on the size and, and scale of the, of the, RIA that you affiliate with, right? If you're, if it's a little bit smaller RIA, you may go to a firm, a, a, a funding a firm like Live Oak Bank, for instance, that will provide the liquidity for the junior advisor to buy the the, the, the senior partner's book of business, because they will, a firm like Live Oak will will lend against and use use your business as the collateral for the loan. And so, in when you start to talk about that space. You move away from total production. So, in, in, like, if you're if you someone's listening to this and they're in, and they're at a wirehouse, their world is all about <clears throat> is all production. Mm-hmm. But on the independent side, it's all about net income. Um, some people use the term EBITDA, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but reality in the RIA space in our world, financial services, since there's not really a lot of depreciation that goes on, mm-hmm. um, you're really talking about EBOC, which is earnings before owners comp. So what, is the, what are the earnings of your business before you took your compensation down? Because um, as a business owner, you're taking your comp down, so you're, sh- you're showing a much lower net income because you've built your comp into that, right? Mm-hmm. So if you back into your, back, your comp back up into the P&L, what is that number? That's the number that they're going to base the deal on. So when people hear multiples like nine or 10, you know, um, uh, Ron Carson just sold uh, a piece of his deal for 21x, right? Mm-hmm. Your listeners should not get that confused with if you're a W2 advisor, they're not going to get 21x of their total revenue, right? That's right. It's, it's it's like uh, speaking two different languages there. 
um, he got 21x of his EBOC, which is so it's obviously a lower number. You know, I'll give an example: if you have a three million dollar producer or you know, a two million dollar producer, you know, they might have an EBOC of a million two, right? So they're gonna now they could get if it's a hundred percent fee based um, advisor, an IAR, right? So so investment advisor, not an RIA. Just, just make sure that people understand that an RIA is a corporate entity not an actual individual. So if they're an IAR and they have a $2 million book of business, um, they're going to, and it's all fee-based, they're going to get, right now, the going rate, uh, what I'm seeing is is eight, nine, you know, 9X of their EBOC of that $1.2 million. So there's a lot of money being thrown around right now. There's a lot of firms out there willing to pay up for firms. You know, that's a trend that I see happening more and more. I'm getting calls from, from, our, from, from IARs and RIAs um, and, the, and the partners and the owners of RIAs wanting to know, should they be monetizing their business right now with all the numbers that they're seeing? I don't know how long it's going to last. I don't know how long this run will last. Interest rates are still low right now. So PE firms and different, you know, RIAs are able to borrow money from firms like Live Oak, for instance at much lower rates. And so that they know that if they can borrow money at four and a half percent or 5%, um, and they can go out and buy, you know, $2 million practices, um, that that's a good investment for them right now. Yeah. And we certainly have seen it, right? I mean, uh, there, every day there's several deals, it seems like that are announced and, and transitions happening all the time. And, and I think it is largely driven by low interest rates and, and kind of a hot market for the, the industry. Uh, have over the 10 years that you've been doing this, uh, have you seen the components of the movement shift? Um, I imagine, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, you know, wirehouse to wirehouse. Uh, then for a while there, we were talking about the breakaway broker. That was the big trend, right? Uh, yeah. People leaving the wirehouse and going to going independent. Um, now I imagine we're seeing more RIA to RIA transitions. W- what's your perspective? Uh, where, where is the, the hot activity now? How has it changed? Yeah. So, you know, I've talked about this a lot. I, I, I still think there is a component of wire to wire or, or really W2 to W2 because you're, you're seeing sort of wire to regional, right? So mm-hmm. a, a Morgan advisor goes to RBC or Stiefel or, or Merrill Lynch advisor goes to UBS or Morgan, right? We're still seeing some of that. And I think we'll continue to see that uh, quite honestly, because there are just some advisors that, don't have the capacity or the desire, right, to want to run their own business. And that's fine. And they understand what they're giving up. And I have plenty of close friends that are in that, that are in that, uh, in that bucket, right? And that's okay, too. I just, just did, actually did a podcast on that. And that's okay. We are seeing a, a, a big increase in retail, so W-2, which I call retail, W-2 to independence, um, primarily I think the biggest reason why is because these advisors have been home, not allowed in their offices for, for now, you know, over 18 months. And when we talk to them, their businesses are growing faster than they've ever, ever been. They have very good relationships with their, with their clients because they they're on zoom calls and they're seeing them more frequently and they're talking to them more often. They're not dealing with any of the sort of, I'll call office drama that goes on when you're in the office. And they're, and they're more focused. And so those advisors are 
already functioning as as de facto independent financial advisors working out of their house. The only difference is they're not getting paid the same way. So I'll sit with an advisor and explain to them, do exactly what you're doing today. You haven't been in your office in a year and a half, but you're growing at 25%, right? So the only difference is you're getting paid 40%. I'm going to help you make your move and I'm going to take your, your net income. So your net income, what hits your checking account every single month, I'm going to take it up by 20 points or 25 points because that's, that's how much of an impact it's going to be. And so when they see that, they're more willing to make that jump because they're more comfortable. They've been living that way. That's a trend that I continue to see growing. The other trend that is along those, that, that path is, is going to the RIA space, um, whether, it's, whether it's a independent financial advisor, so they're already independent, they're you know, 80% or 90% fee, they're looking at now going to an RIA. So either affiliating, plugging into an existing RIA, uh, potentially opening up their own RIA. Um, and depending on the size, I, I will agree or not agree with that. Um, I think if you're below a, a billion dollars in AUM, I don't think you should be owning, opening up your own RIA. Okay. I, think that, I think there's a lot of risk there. There's a lot of cost there. Uh, I think your production will suffer because you'll end up doing more They'll end up be, being more of a compliance person, et cetera. And so I think that there is, not I think, I know that I can show an advisor the math on plugging in to an RIA, right? Rolling up and affiliating with a bigger RIA and the numbers will be just as lucrative for them without the hassles. So without setting up their, without having to set outside their own uh, uh, RIA, setting up their with, own corporate Without RIA. dealing with the corporate RIA and the ADV and the wrong filings, and the SEC comes in and charges you $15,000 for it because, you know, you, you added on two advisors and you forgot to update your ADV. And they, you know, the SEC's job is to find ways to generate revenue when they come mm-hmm. and audit you. And so I think that there, it's, it's just... It's too much risk, and which brings to my, my third point is part of where I see the, the next train that I see coming and the change in the business over the next few, few years, and we're starting to see it with some of these smaller RIAs rolling up into the bigger RIAs, I think that we're going to see an evolution of this process where the independent guy went to be, went, went open up his own RIA. He's now two or three years into it and realizes this isn't what it was cracked up to be, Right. Mm-hmm. I just went through my second audit and it's, you know, like going to a proctologist, right? Because mm-hmm. they're not like FINRA. I mean, an SEC auditor is not like FINRA. They're going to come in and they're going to want to spend a month or two months, even longer. I've heard of situations where, where the SEC has been in someone's office for six months mm-hmm. and, and they don't want your compliance person, right? They want the owner of the firm, the person that's signing off on the ADV. And so I think we're going to see this trend start to really pick up where these smaller RIAs are going to really look to roll up, get rid of their, their own individual corporate RIA, uh, their entity, their entity, and roll up into bigger, bigger firms. Um, I, I think that's going to happen. I think you're going to see that partly also because of the TD Schwab merger, mm-hmm. right? So TD, we, I was a huge fan of TD. Love them. They, they really took care of their advisors, even the smaller advisors the smaller RIAs, right? Well, what I'm hearing more and more of is just the service that these advisors, these smaller 50 million, 100 million, 
$150 million RIAs, $200 million RIAs are just not getting the level of service that they wanted um, because Schwab just can't do it. They don't have the capacity and they're getting frustrated. And I think those folks are going to look, look to partner to roll up into bigger RIAs where they have a lot more scale and leverage with, with a firm like Schwab or Pershing. So I think that's a big trend we're going to start seeing more and more of um, over the next two to three years. So more employed IARs working for the, the larger, yep. guess, in some cases, almost national now, uh, yep. RIAs. Yep. That's is there a point when you're advising uh, folks on where to go, is it the decision between the independent broker-dealer channel or one of those large RIAs, uh, is that purely a, a numbers game or is there a difference there in the channels that they're more comfortable working in? And, and I'll tell you why I ask this because, you know, you talk to the independent broker-dealers now and they'll tell you that upwards of 60 to 70% of their revenue is fee-based. Uh, they're de facto large RIAs, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, they're quickly moving away from commission-based product-based business into financial planning. Uh, and, and quickly, what's the difference between then an independent broker-dealer and a large national RIA like a, a Carson or a, 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 you know, take any of them? Uh, yeah, right. So, so uh, let me see if I can, if I can, if I can break that down, right? The, um, what, what I look at when I look, when I talk to a financial advisor, right, you ask about, is it about, is it about the money? It, it, it is. I mean, we have a saying, not about the money, but it's about the money, yeah. um, right? But we really look at what is the what is the advisor's uh, product and, and their their business look like? Are they are they really pu- purely an advisor that's running their own money? They don't do any brokerage business, so they're not doing any annuities or not doing any mutual funds or you know sort of you know individual bond business, any that typical brokerage business. Um, if that's if that's not the if if they don't do any of that business and they are you know ninety percent ninety five percent advisory, then there is an opportunity for them to uh, and it may and it might make sense for them to go direct to an RIA. Um, but after two years, if they do that and they're not affiliated at all with a broker dealer, then they're going to lose their Series Seven license. So if you're you know fifty five years old um, or forty five years old. You may not be doing any brokerage business today, but but that might change two years from now, and so you never know. So I'm always I'm 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 a little bit reluctant because uh, you only have two years of of non registration with a broker dealer before you before you your Series Seven expires, right? And then you have to go take the test again. So I'm I'm a little bit hesitant with doing something like that. But what I found, and it has to do with this, why I think there's there's going to be a trend. To for individual producers to roll up into RIAs or hybrid hybrid broker dealers that have an RIA component, mm-hmm. um, I found that the economics have gotten much much better. That makes it makes it feasible for that producer to be part of a hybrid RIA. Um, some of the some of the challenges might be depending on what you want to do as a as a producer. Right. If so, do you want to write books? Do you want to charge for financial planning? Do you want to charge for estate planning? Do you want to be able to, um, you know, own own uh, an accounting firm? Do you want to be able to own a real estate investment firm? You, you know, depending on the types of things that you're looking to do as a business, it may be easier 
to do it just within the confines of, of an RIA only versus being affiliated with a broker-dealer because if you're affiliated with a broker-dealer, so you are a registered producer with some broker-dealer and you have your own your own uh, real estate, you know, real estate business on the outside, an accounting firm on the outside, or and, or and or you have your own RIA, you own your own RIA, right? Finra will look at those businesses at as outside business activities, right? Not the other way around. Even though your brokerage business may be a fraction of what your advisory business is, Finra doesn't look at it that way. They don't really care. So the firm that you're with is going to have to oversee in some some form or fashion those outside business activities. And if it's an RIA, if you have if you have your own RIA and your own advisory business, a lot of firms will end up charging you a supervisory fee on those on those RIA assets, which could be substantial dollars. So we look at every situation differently to figure out which is going to be the best combination for that particular person based on what they're trying to accomplish. Right? So one of the questions I ask, and it sounds like a silly question, but it really gets them thinking, and that is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, I don't care how big the producer is. I ask him, what do you want to be when you grow up? Close your eyes and imagine 10 years from now what your business or your enterprise looks like 10 years from now. And then from there, we help guide them to what we think is going to be the best combination to allow them to achieve the goals that they want to achieve, right? And one of the things I get them to understand on the money on the money side of it is, what's the cost differential between being part of a BD, where even if you're 90% fee-based, but you're still part of a BD, and there's going to be some costs that you incur there, right? Payouts and stuff like that. And then what's the cost? of you owning your own RIA and all the things that are involved there. You have to, you have to hire a compliance consultant. Maybe you have to hire a compliance officer, all of those things. And let's say it's three points, a three point differential, right? So three percentage point differential by owning your own RIA. What I look at is what's that three points mean to you, right? If it means that you're going to, you're fine. You're going to make three points more on $2 million or $3 million or 10 million, whatever the number is. Um, but you're going to be spending half your day, um, you know, with it, the, behind the door managing, managing the, the business side of the compliance side of it. When really you're an outside guy, you're a salesperson. You're you want to meet with clients. You love meeting with them. You love doing that kind of business. You have to look at that three percent as an investment in yourself and growing your business. Because yeah, you might make three percent less by going to a, 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 an independent broker dealer and being part of a different organization. But if they're going to do all the compliance for you, they're going to take all the heavy lifting off your shoulders. They're going to take all the uh, risk, fiduciary risk off your shoulders. So you only have to focus on growing your business. That might be worth the three points, mm -hmm. right? Because if you can grow your business at 15, if you have the time, well, now you're ahead of the game. So I, I look at all of those decisions and, and recommendations, really, not decisions, because my clients will make a decision. But I look at my recommendation through those lenses. What would I yeah. do if it, if it was me? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What about all these uh, uh, platforms that are out there now that uh, purport to do the same thing uh, for the uh, RIA, which buys into a larger platform like a, a 
don't know, like a focus or a high tower or a dynasty or uh, one of these firms that purports to take all those headaches of running the business off your plate uh, uh-huh. and allows you just to go be an advisor, uh, but still be in the independent RIA channel. Yeah, look, I think I'm, I'm a huge fan of it if you understand the math, right? You have to know what you're paying for and what you're getting. And so a, a lot of those firms are seeing that. And if you can affiliate with one of those firms for the right reasons, understand how the math works, and they're willing to take the, those burdens off your shoulders so you can go out and just go find money, right? That's what you want to do. You want to go out and play golf and meet and lunches and dinners and socialize and, and you like doing that, then affiliating with a, with a firm like a Focus or, or, or some other high towers or, or any, other, any other firms that are out there that are aggregators of sorts, then that's a great, that's a, it's a great decision. But you have to know what you're, what you're paying. You have to know the numbers. You really have to know your numbers. And then you have to know how are you going to make that work for you. Uh, the other component of it is what you have to look at is some of these firms you want to you want to roll up into them. Well, they're going to require you to run money their way, use their brand, all of those things like do it their way. So you may not want that. You, th- yeah, that's yeah. another component of what goes into that decision of deciding sure. which firm to go to. Right. If you have your own brand and you want to stay, you want to keep your brand and you run run your the money you you like running money or you have a team that runs the money you know it's your internal team and you don't want to hand it off to anybody else then you have to look for one of those uh, i'll call it aggregator rias that will allow you to do that mm-hmm. yeah using your own technology or your own technology stack or the way you like to do performance reporting or whatever it might be um it just depends all of those things you know you you might you might be using orion and the firm that you want to look at um, it uses Black Diamond, right? And they don't want you to use Orion for some reason, right? They mm-hmm. want you to be on Black Diamond. So what does that mean to you and your practice and, and the transition? How difficult is it going to be to transition out of Orion into Black Diamond, Yeah. right? If you're already at an RIA or firm that uses Orion, and so all your data is, is in, in there, is it who owns that account, right? Who owns that? Is it a child account, right? So the, the who owns the Orion account where all your data sets because you want to be able to move that information and all the performance reporting and history over. So there's those, there's things that go into, into those decisions that are not just about the dollars, right? It's about the trans trans transfer. Are you going to, you know, if you're at Schwab and they use fidelity, well, how are you going to feel about that? Transferring everything over from Schwab to fidelity or Pershing or LPL or whatever. So a lot of those types of things, have to be taken into account when you make that decision. But to your point, to your question, just like there are independent broker dealers that you can roll up into and hand off a lot of those, those uh, responsibilities, the same thing applies in the RIA space. It's just a matter of to what degree do you want to hand off you know, different things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Final question for you, Frank. I, you know, it's in your consulting business, trying to help advisors maximize the monetization of their business. Are there things that advisors could do long before they even begin to get into one of these negotiations with a potential uh, independent broker dealer or another warehouse or RA, wherever they might be, um, in terms of uh, their clients and their 
business that would help monetize the, you know, help make the, the, the multiples later in the process a little higher. Uh, you know, I mean, I imagine that there won't be that many people interested in paying a lot of money for a decumulation phase book of business. Uh, you know, is there technology that advisors should be investing in now so that five, 10 years down the road when they start to enter this kind of process, uh, they're in a better shape? What, what should advisors be doing now to help monetize their business further down yeah. the road? Yeah, that, that's, a great, um, that's a great question. And so if, you know, a couple of things, and it, 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 it's a little different if you're in a W-2 world, right, versus an independent space. Sure. Um, but really being as, as holistic as you can with your clients without necessarily tying them too much to firm product, right? So if you're, if you're a W-2 advisor and the firm is pushing, you know, to do uh, alternative investment products and different things that are very sticky, sticky to that firm, those are going to be problematic when you want to leave because they're, they're, they're not going to be able to move. Um, mortgage business tied to the firm, th those types of things create, create issues. Um, a, one of the things you can do on, if you're a sole practitioner, you need to work on building out a team around you. And that team could just could still be you as the financial advisor, but make sure that you have a really good support team. So your, your assistant is strong. Maybe you have an, a, a relationship manager a coordinator who hand, who makes sure that you're continually touching your clients as much as possible. And then you might have a, a you know, a non-registered sales assistant that is doing all the compliance stuff. So you as an, as the individual producer are spending a lot of time talking and touching your clients um, on the investment side. What I've seen is that you're going to be able to get a higher multiple. If you are e either running the money yourself or have a team, your internal team that runs the money. Right? If you farm it out to, to, to SMA managers, that sometimes SMA managers can be more costly when you move from a W-2 firm to an independent firm because of scale. So you have to look at that. How are you running the money? If you are an a individual producer and you're running all the money yourself, uh, there's actually a little bit of a discount applied in terms of valuation because the concern is, if if I buy your book of business and you're running the money and you've been doing that for your clients for 15 years and you get hit by a bus, well, no one can replace the way you're running money. So there's a risk that we're going to lose clients because we're not going to do what you used to do, right? So you have to figure out how to solve for that. So you can still run the money, but if you have a team, two or three people that are part of your investment committee that make up the decisions on how to run money and one of those individuals either leaves or, or you know, gets on the proverbial bus, it won't have a dramatic effect on how the performance of the portfolio is, right? How the money's being run. That's mm -hmm. something that you, that you should be doing. Using a CRM system effectively, right? Client relationship management system. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, I mean, there are, better, there are some that are better than others, but using that system so that all of your notes, all of the information on your clients is in there historically. So the firm that's buying your business will have all that information when they're, when they're acquiring your practice. That's also something that works out really well. You mentioned before sort of a junior partner, right? Start to work on cultivating the next generation of your business so that you can ease your way out when the time comes, but ease your way out to a known entity for your clients. 
you know, you have, you know, Jill's been with you for, for the last six years, seven years or eight years. So now when you start to slow down, right, at first, Jill is now going to take some, you know, work a little bit more and, and talk to clients more often than she maybe was in the past. Now when you slow down even further, Jill's going to talk even more. And by the time you are ready to really um, retire, the clients are now used to talking to Jill on a regular basis. And so it's less traumatic for that client than just not thinking about retirement uh, and not hiring anybody else because you're not ready to retire. So I'm not going to hire anybody else. Why would I want to do that? Um, that something happens. That's very traumatic for a client. And there's a higher risk of losing that client. And therefore, a buyer will pay less for that book of business. Yeah. yeah. Um, transaction business over fee business. And this is going to sound, you know, like, you know, oh, this is my, my firm tells me this all the time, go to a fee-based model. Well, that's true when it comes to valuations because transaction business can't necessarily be replicated, but fee business can. It's much more consistent. That's why firms have pushed over the years for advisors to go from transaction to advisory because even for publicly traded companies, analysts put a higher valuation on broker-dealers that have a higher propensity and higher amount of revenue that's fee-based, right? And so it's the same kind of thing. Just because you're not as big as Morgan Stanley doesn't mean that you shouldn't think and act and run your business like, like a Morgan Stanley or UBS or some other firm, right, mm -hmm. that has a lot more uh, advisory business. So those are the kinds of things that you can be doing today that you can start thinking about when the time comes. Uh, one of the biggest things, and, I'll, and I, I said this at the beginning, and this is sort of part of dual monetization, but really it's all about planning. Um, advisors spend, hopefully, their careers helping their clients plan, but they tend to forget about themselves. And that's where contingency planning comes into place. You actually will get a higher valuation from a buyer if you have a contingency plan in place already. And whoever that is, doesn't matter. A contingent successor can be changed, right? Just because you, 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 you have a, a friend of yours that's in the, in this, at the same firm as you, and you agree that he or she's going to take over your business if something happens, but you have, a, you have that in writing and documented that they are the contingent successor for you, that's really, 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 really important. And I try to get our clients to understand that um, no matter what, even if they decide they're not doing anything right now, I'll ask them, well, okay, well, do you have, do you at least have a contingent successor in place? No, but I should, I know I've been talking about it. That's really important because stuff happens. I mean, coming yeah, out of COVID, yeah. you never know, but sure. And, and yeah, it strikes me that the, the, the things that you're talking about are also, there's a bit of a irony there that the things that an advisor can do to grow the value of their business when they do eventually pull the trigger are often things that they have to do to kind of make themselves less the center of the business, right? Uh, if uh, you know the advisor's name on the door, the advisor's running all the money, the advisor's the primary client relationship person, the advisor's, uh, that business will be so identified with that advisor that uh, when it comes time to put in place one of these monetization charges you're talking about, makes sense that it would be a less valuable business, right? I mean, Correct. the folks I, that I, buy this I literally just was with a, with, with a friend of mine last week and we got into a debate, I'll call it a debate, because he wanted to use his name on as the business name, and I just was like, I can't let you do that. Like, I'm not going to let you do that, um, because 
it creates problems down the road. Pick a brand, to, you know, that's important, that means something to you. That's not your name. That's that's a big deal, and I you know, I appreciate you bringing that up. That is, and it all sounds silly, um, and sometimes you know maybe egos get in the way. You always wanted, you know, Armstrong Wealth Management, right? But mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't. Also, if you're trying to grow an enterprise. It can hurt you in terms of recruiting advisors into your organization because they maybe they just don't want to work for Armstrong Wealth Management, right? Um, you know, they pick an, you know something that could that means something to you. Could be a place, a location, could be a city, could be a an image, an image or whatever. That that's more important. Um, that's also a brand that can last longer beyond you as an individual. For sure, uh, we're not all Ron Carson, right? I mean, uh, yeah, Ron Carson could do it, but that's not not going to work for everybody. Um, Different model. Yep, Frank, this has been great. Where can people find you? Uh, anything uh, new that you've got in the works for 2022? Uh, where should people keep an eye out? Yeah, great. So they can go to our my our consulting website, which is EliteConsultingPartners.com, and that we have a ton of great stuff on there, including our podcast, which is Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. Uh, that's uh, on, on iTunes. It's also on YouTube, um, less formal. But if you want to, if you want to see us as we're talking, uh, my my CEO, my COO Dale Dempsey's on with me as my co-host. Um, the other thing that we really started working on in terms of you know it, it came off this this trend of independence of advisors going independent is we launched a business called uh, Practice Dynamics. Uh, that that website is advisorpracticedynamics.com, where we can really help a W-2 financial advisor, go go and, br- and break away and become independent and help them with all the things that they may not understand they need to do in terms of starting their own office, right? Mm-hmm. So real estate, technology, literally right down to plugging in the computers, setting up the monitors. We do all of that for them. Phones, branding, website, transition, transition paperwork. We do everything from them start to finish. And so that's something that we've, we've seen a lot of success on simply because there's a there's this there's just moved independence and a lot of w2 advisors don't necessarily know how to open an office and we do uh we've you know i've been running my own my own business for 10 years so i know what it's like i look at real estate all the time um I, we can guide and advise those those clients on what to do and what not to do and so yeah advisorpracticedynamics.com is is our new thing we're really proud of it um, more importantly it allows us to stay connected with our clients you know, not only to when we make them, when we bring them to a new firm, but also while they're at that firm, right? So we want to make sure we're really giving them the right recommendations and the right firm to work with because we're going to stay connected to that that consultant and that, that client of ours for years to come. Yeah, so. that's great. All right. I, I advise uh, advisors to check that out. Uh, yeah. Frank, thanks very much for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it. Good information. Uh, congratulations on the finalist uh, uh, nomination. Uh, for the 2020 awards, 2021 awards, and uh, thanks for talking to us. I really appreciate it, David. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. And this has been the Wealthies Podcast. I'm David Armstrong. Talk to you next time. This content has been made for information and educational purposes only. The views and opinions represent the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of wealthmanagement.com.